Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Walt Disney Concert Hall. I'm Tom Neenan, and I am delighted to welcome Jean-Baptiste Robin, who is the artist for tonight's recital. Welcome, and thank you for being here. <clears throat> so please. So, so I have to say, you have the coolest job title of any organist I've ever heard. Jean-Baptiste Robin is the organist of the Royal Chapel at Versailles. Now, what does the, what does the chapel organist at Versailles do? Now <laughs> or in the past? Because the job has changed a lot. Uh, right now, the Palace of Versailles is a museum. So it's not a chapel like you can imagine. Uh, we don't have a lot of services, only one per month. So, you know, it's very light for the masses, but we have a lot of visits and private concerts and donors too. Donors. Uh, donors, yes. Uh -huh. For example, sometimes I play before the, you know, before the dinner or before the dessert uh -huh. <laughs> for some donors. And uh, so we have a lot of things. The Palace of Versailles has also uh, 13,000 friends. And uh, these friends, we, we make concerts for the friends of the Palace of Versailles. And uh, in two hours, the chapel is full. They booked uh, very fast uh, the concerts we organize there. You are, you are a French organist, and so obviously you, you spend a lot of time improvising. And I could imagine you improvising during a dinner. If you had the menu from the, from the chef, you could perhaps perform a whole, almost a recital during dinner, accompanying the various dishes that come along. I think it's a good idea. So you, you have to work in the Palace of Versailles <laughs> to suggest new ideas? I'll, 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 I'll suggest the, it the next time I, I'm the there. The question is a digestion. <laughs> oh, yeah. If I don't play well, it could be difficult, you know, but uh, yes, sometimes I have also Americans who are coming mm -hmm. and some, uh, you know, Sandra Bullock, Bullock, Sandra Bullock, the yeah. actress, yeah. she came and said, oh, could you play for me something crazy? Something crazy? So I did, but I don't know if she, she, if she liked, but uh, yes, we have some unusual requests for Im improvisation sometimes. Mm. Now, um, I know that in, in 1778, the story goes that Mozart was offered the job as organist at the court of Versailles, and he turned it down because, the story goes, because it didn't pay very well. I hope that they've improved the pay. I mean, do they give you an apartment or something there as well? Alors, we can live in the palace. Many people live in the palace. Really? Uh, it's a very big place, and you have the park, and in the park you have many very nice buildings. So me, I don't live in the palace, but I live in front of the palace. It's not so bad. Not so bad, because you also teach at the conservatoire. Exactly. Right? At, uh, in Versailles. Exactly. Uh, organ classes, theory classes, etc. Composition and organ. Um, it's me. In the, in the shop is a CD of this man's music, and because I was curious and I wanted to uh, hear a little bit of his music before tonight. I, I bought it, and I have to tell you, it's one of the best CDs I have heard in a very long time. It's not all organ music. It's orchestral music, organ and trumpet, organ and cello, I think. And piano and, 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 and clarinet and string orchestra. Fantastic 
fantastic uh, CD. And it's somewhere in here, there's a picture of you standing in the park in Versailles, I think, or maybe that's on your website, I can't remember. I don't remember. <laughs> somewhere, somewhere here. Um, well, so t there are th uh, some pieces tonight on the program that you have composed. And I'm hoping maybe you can tell us a little bit about them, maybe things that you would want the audience to know about your composing or about these pieces as they, as they hear them, presumably for the first time. The, the pieces I have chosen for tonight are just uh, placed in the whole program. I mean, I choose these pieces because of the program. It's very small pieces. They are only at one voice. Because the organ is uh, in France, the, the French organ is an organ with singing. We don't have a very loud, very pushing organ. France is a country where the organ builders wanted the organ to sing. So I have composed works at one voice, like a singer. And so you will listen different waves of voice, of song, Mm -hmm. at one voice tonight in these three little pieces. But I have not chosen the crazy pieces I have composed for tonight. The quiet ones. Yeah, the, the ones with just one voice. And one. You have to purchase a CD for this. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. But the, um, the liner notes in the, in the CD talk about you. I, I found it interesting to read this and then listen to some of the music because it talks a little bit. You're interested in a kind of tension between things that are fixed and repeat and circular and the things that kind of flow and move around them. It seems to me that it's a very interesting approach. Alors maybe I could explain you why with the piano. So you know the octave, it's the same sound. And between you have 12 notes, which are exactly at the same distance. Okay, so it's symmetric, it's symmetrical, exactly the same. What I did in the piece of tonight, for example, you have the octave, and the center of symmetry is this note. So I'm going to show you something. When you do a symmetry, so it's the center, I could do this note, the mirror, not the mirror gallery, mm. huh, but the mirror. It. If I do. So you have a mirror. And this is something who can turn like a watch around a center of symmetry. It's coming from the nature of the chromatic scales. So I worked on it, and I did uh, some chords, some mini music. But it's not uh, intellectual. Huh? It's, uh, mm -hmm. okay. it's music. So you're, you follow in the, in the footsteps, in a sense, of some very important French organists, organ composers, such as Marchand and Couperin, both predecessors of his at Versailles. It must, be, um, it must be, in a way, rather daunting to, to 
to be in a position where you are, um, you know, following these 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 folks, but you're you're paying you're paying tribute to them tonight. Could you could you walk us through briefly the the program, or just highlight a few things in the program that you would like for us to know about the the pieces and be before you have to go off and prepare, just a general overview. This program is a, a, the French, uh, a full French program, and you will trip around more than 300 years from 1690 to today. And I think you will, um, you could enjoy, you could realize that there is a red line in France. The colors, we are in country with a lot of colors. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, about the organ, I would say virtuosity. You say virtuosity. Virtuosic, yes. Yes. It's the two ways of tonight, the colors and the virtuosity that I would like to, to show. And during 300 years, this is quite always here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You chose uh, to transcribe some Ravel and also some Chopin, um, an orchestral piece with beautiful colors. Yes, and it's a piano piece. It's a, a piano piece at first. Well, at first, but then he orchestrated it. Yes, yes yeah. Um, the um, the the instrument. How do how do you go about taking a a piano work that is, for example, the Chopin piece, especially that is so pianistic, and making it making it work. How do, you, how, do you, how do you do that? But I am a composer. I have composed for orchestra, for large orchestra, to small orchestra. And I studied orchestrations during three years in France. So for me, it's something very natural to do this. It's just the music is uh, telling something. And you are going to telling this with another instrument. And it gives another dimension. I think the Chopin is an organ piece. Mm -hmm. The central part, you will listen tonight, but be careful of the central piece of the Chopin. It's really organ. Huh? But he never composed for organ. Huh? But, uh, do you, do you uh, and maybe I don't want you to, 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 to tell us in advance if you don't want to, but I'm curious, do you, do you restrict yourself to a, a single sound or a couple of sounds in the Chopin piece, or do you use all the colors of the organ that are available to you? It's the music who says you what to do. Uh -huh. And Chopin, it's something very intimate at the beginning. You know, you know I, I won't play now, but it's very intimate. And the Central Park is very dark. It's the storm, the tempest who is coming. So I have chosen a color, a dark color. You will never listen to the organ. And for the Ravel, you will, it's near from the orchestra, but it's unusual. You will, you will see. It's very unusual. The, um, the opportunity to, to write for orchestra, um, you're, you've, you've written some pieces. Um, are you finding that you're having opportunities for them to be played both in France and, and here? I mean, is, it, is, it, uh, is, it, is there opportunity for you as a composer as well as, a, as an organist? I have composed two pieces for large orchestra. I have composed a concerto for trumpet and uh, this piece for uh, string orchestra and organ. And right now, that's, that's all. It was uh, played in uh, France, in Paris. Uh, 
by Orchestre de Paris, by Sevres uh, Orchestre, Orchestre de Cologne, Orchestre National de France, and uh, the Philharmonia Orchestra in London. But that's all. But if you know someone here, <laughs> we need we need a, a concerto for orchestra. You, you you have to send an email to the to the staff saying Mr. Robin has to compose, and I will come back. A concerto for <laughs> organ and orchestra, full orchestra. Ah uh, yes, it's one of my uh, expectation. Wonderful, wonderful. All right. Well, I I promised the Philharmonic that I would only keep you for about ten or fifteen minutes, so I'm going to let you go prepare. But thank you so much for thank coming uh, this afternoon. Thank you to you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Bye. -bye. I'll take that. Thank you. Yeah, I do recommend uh, that you stop at the shop. Um, the CD is just inside the door. And it's got his picture on the cover. And it really, to me, it was really a, a revelation. I, I, I can't recommend it highly enough. So a few notes about the, the program tonight and what, what you're going to hear. The first piece on the program is by a very well-known organist from the chapel at Versailles, Louis Marchand. Uh, who wrote several uh, collections of organ pieces, as did so many of uh, Marchand's contemporaries. These, they tended to write these organ books, or leave dog, uh, that had a variety of different kinds of pieces in them. There's a famous story about Marchand uh, and the now much more famous J.S. Bach. Uh, the two were rough contemporaries, uh, and during the, their lifetime, Marchand was revered as an organ virtuoso and was Nash internationally known as an organ virtuoso. Bach, not so much. Um, but the two of them tended to um, trade reputations back and forth in the press. And as it happened, they both ended up in Dresden, in the city of Dresden, at the same time. And someone had the nice idea of uh, arranging a competition between the two famous organists. Bach was about 30, and Marchand was almost 20 years Bach's senior, so he was about 50. And according to various written sources, uh, including Bach's first biographer, a man by the name of Johann Nicholas Forkel, uh, the two men were invited to participate in this organ-playing competition to determine who was the best organist of the two. And these sorts of competitions happened all the time. They still happen today, of course. Um, the details of the story are not really very well known, but the sh we do know that the, the showdown never happened. And the most elaborate recounting of the story talks about Marchand wandering around at night around the church on the outside while Bach was practicing and listening to Bach's uh, playing and then leaving in a carriage uh, under the cover of darkness because he didn't want to face Bach in the head-to-head uh, -head match. It probably never really happened, but it makes for a good story. And the, the Parisian Marchand uh, became, of course, ultimately much less famous than the Leipziger uh, Johann Sebastian Bach and it may well have been that rather than playing an organ competition, the two of them decided to have a coffee in Dresden and, and call it a day. In any case, Louis Marchand's um, dialogue, Grand Dialogue, 
from the third book of organ pieces opens the program tonight, and it's a big, fiery, multi-section piece, very much in the classic French organ tradition. And Bach certainly well knew this music, that is the, the music of Marchand and others of the classic French school, because he had a number of manuscripts in his library at the time of his death. One of the interesting features, and, and Jean-Baptiste talked a little bit about the, the colors of the organ, one of the very distinctive qualities of the French organ music of this time is that the composer frequently directs the registration, that is the exact specific sounds that the organist is supposed to use in this music, as opposed to German organ literature, which for the most part did not do that. That, that is to say, for example, in, in virtually all of, the, all of the toccatas and fugues or preludes and fugues of Bach, there's virtually no organ registrations in most of them. He might say full organ from, uh, occasionally. Um, but for the most part, it's not given. But in the French case, the specific sounds that um, the composer wants are very often given, and he very often will communicate that registration by the title of the piece, such as Le Grand Jeu. Okay? The Grand Jeu, this piece is a dialogue for the Grand Jeu. The Grand Jeu has no equivalent in English that you can really use, but it is essentially a combination of the very fiery, bright reed sounds of the organ with the so-called cornet sound. And the cornet is a very distinctive fe feature of French organs and French organ sound. And it's a compound stop so that when, you, when you're sitting at the organ or if you go to an organ and you see the, a stop, that you pull to create, to, to allow you to push a key and create sound that says cornet on it, you're not just allowing one set of pipes, that is one pipe for each key to speak, but you're pulling a stop that is going to activate, in a sense, five or six stop, uh, five or six sets of pipes. So in this way, it's a compound stop. And it's made up of a, a foundation sound, for example, this low C, and the octave above it, and then essentially a, a major chord on top of it. And it has a very distinctive sound. A couple of years ago, I recorded this little demonstration on the organ at my former parish. adding the, set, the parts of the cornet. So the effect is one of pressing a single note, but getting essentially a whole chord. And you don't hear it as a chord, 
Um, you can kind of hear it as a separate sound if you play it very low. So what I did was I pulled the cornet stop on the same instrument and I started down very low where you can hear the components and then simply went up. And as, as you go up, it becomes more of a color than a distinctive set of sounds. So here's how that sounds. This time, it's just kind of a rich sound. So, oops, excuse me. Sorry. So, when you put when you put all of this together with the very fiery, bright French reeds of the classic French organ, you get a very, very big bright sound. It, you, it will peel the, the paint off the walls if you're not careful. And the piece that we're going to hear um, tonight at the beginning uses that combination of, of sounds, and it's the, the, the dialogue of Marchand. Here's the beginning of that piece. Big French organ sound. The second piece on the program by Couperin, another predecessor of Jean-Baptiste Robin, another organist at the chapel of Versailles, uses another very distinctive French organ sound. And the, the title of the piece is, uh, refers to the tierce en taille. Tierce en taille uses that cornet sound that I played for you earlier play it up here. But sometimes it will also use the lower octave, so down here, and also maybe extend up even higher. So you might have as many as one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight sounds in the, in the complete um, cornet on some of the larger instruments. Again, it doesn't sound, you don't hear all this distinctive um, individual sounds, but it has this color. And when the organist says tierce en taille, he's saying that, that the range of this particular piece where the solo is heard using that cornet sound is in the tenor. And it's actually that's the tenor part, sort of the tenor voice range, is an area that you can really hear the individual components. Here's a little bit of a tierce en taille piece by another uh, Versailles organist, Grigny.
You hear these beautiful scales going up and down and a very kind of dark, quiet accompaniment to this sound. It's a, beautif it's a beautiful sound and one that is distinctively French. Well, distinctively French, a couple of centuries later, is Charles-Marie Vidor, who sort of defines the romantic uh, organ literature and the, or, the uh, romantic organ sound, along with perhaps César Franck. In January of 1870, with the combined lobbying of the organ builder Cavaille Cole, Charles Gounod, and Camille Saint-Saëns, all three important individuals, the 25-year-old Charles-Marie Vidor was appointed as provisional organist at Saint-Sulpice in Paris, the most highly prized position for a French organist by far. The organ at Saint-Sulpice was a cavaille cole instrument, that is, one of the great French organ builders was Aristide cavaille cole and he populated French uh, Parisian churches in particular with these masterpieces of instruments, many of which are still to be heard to this day. And this instrument provided the young Charles-Marie Vidor with his inspiration, and Vidor took the position at Saint-Sulpice and stayed there for 64 years, <clears throat> until the end of 1933. He was succeeded in 1934 by his former student and assistant for 28 years, Marcel Dupré, uh, who remained there until his death in 1971. Between the two of them, teacher and student, they held the position at Saint-Sulpice for 101 years. In many ways, Vidor established the tradition of French organ composition and performance, which would prevail for most of those hundred years that followed. And his music is inextricably linked with performance, as Jean-Baptiste Robin was talking about being a performer and a composer and how the two of them meet in improvisation. Certainly, uh, Vidor is, the, is in, the same, in the same camp. The, fa the very famous five-manual, five-keyboard Cavaille Cole organ at Saint-Sulpice gave, gave him all kinds of inspirations for a new body of literature which came to be known as organ symphonies because the organ itself was thought of in many ways as a kind of a symphonic instrument capable not of, not of imitating or matching the sounds of the orchestra, but certainly with the variety of colors that we have in the orchestra. Vidor said of that instrument, a piece, if I had not been seduced by those timbres, by the mystical charm of that wave of sound, I would never have written organ music. But write organ music he did, literally dozens and dozens of smaller works and 10 large pieces which he called organ symphonies. Vidor's symphonies can be divided up into three groups. The first four symphonies, are often called collections. But with the next three, Vidor shows his real mastery of contrapuntal technique and explore, explores all the capabilities of the organ, as, and especially the one at Saint-Sulpice. The fifth and sixth symphonies are perhaps his best known. Uh, we're going to hear the first movement of the sixth symphony uh, tonight. The, the later ones are uh, perhaps less, less uh, frequently performed and virtually everybody has heard. If you don't recognize it from the name, you would recognize it uh, from the music, the, the finale of the Fifth Symphony. The great Albert Schweitzer met 
Vidor, uh, when Schweitzer was a young boy of just 18 years old, and immediately the two of them hit it off, and Schweitzer began to study with Vidor in Paris, and in 1905, with the help of Vidor, uh, Schweitzer published a French-language biography of Bach, which was published in German in 1908 and in English in 1911. And the next year, the year before his first trip to Africa, Schweitzer published the first volume of the Vidor Schweitzer edition of the complete works of Bach for organ. The Vidor Schweitzer edition of the Bach organ works really was the, the bread and butter edition that virtually everyone used during most of the 20th century only surpassed late in the century by the, the, the new Bach edition that came out of Leipzig. Of Vidor's symphony, Schweitzer said, his 10 symphonies reveal the development of the art of organ playing as he himself has experienced it. The first are creations perfect in form, permeated by a lyric, melodic, sometimes even a sentimental spirit. With the fifth symphony, he deserts this road. The lyric withdraws. Something else strives to take its place. The seventh and eighth symphonies are transition works. They are of the organ, yet conceived in a boldly orchestral manner. At the same time, austerity appears even more clearly, that austerity that Vidor brings back to sacred art in his last two symphonies. So clearly, uh, Schweitzer was a great admirer of Vidor and his music. The first movement of the Sixth Symphony is characteristic of Vidor's mature style. It is in a modified sonata allegro form uh, that may mean something to, to probably mean something to many of you, but it's the symphonic form that was used by Haydn and Mozart and Brahms and virtually every classic uh, composer, but of course expanded and, and using a quite a different musical language here. There are two principal themes. The first is a dense chordal texture, and the second is full of a kind of improvisatory spirit. Here's the first theme of the Vidor Sixth. Vidor hints at the second theme in the transition to that theme. It's a very kind of improvisational idea, um, and it would give you the, the sense of perhaps a, a recitation or a recitational style, but again, very improvisational. He returns to the first theme again, but then shortly thereafter, he presents the second theme in its entirety, and here's how the actual second theme sounds. Oops, excuse me, wrong.
And, he, and here, as before, Vidor sort of tips his hand a little bit, offering a taste of what is to come, uh, primarily the combining of these two ideas and the juxtaposition of the two. Here's an example of that from a little bit later on in the movement. One of the most notoriously difficult parts of this piece comes near the end of the development section before the return to the, to the first and second theme. Um, and it's, it's kind of a jazzy spot where the pedal part has this virtuosic um, passage. It's all kind of quiet, um, so you might not even notice it, but when you see Jean-Baptiste Robin's feet flying at warp speed, um, with this kind of jazzy, uh, kind of plucked bass, you'll, you'll be aware of it. Here's how it sounds. And just for good measure, he keeps the pedals going at warp speed and brings in a counter melody in the left hand. It's, it's rather insane, actually. Um, just before I, I conclude, um, Jean-Baptiste Robin, as, as we talked about, has transcribed some movements from Ravel's Mother Goose Suite. Um, Ravel's first biographer, Alexis Roland Manuel, describes Ravel around 1911, right around the time that he was working on uh, the Mother Goose Suite, uh, orchestration, and also the incredible ballet, uh, Daphnis and Chloe. And this is, what, um, this is what Roland Manuel says about Ravel. As Satie and I were about to go through the entrance to Ravel's apartment, a small man appeared whom I took at first to be a, a jockey. Ravel was extremely small and very thin. He was wearing a bowler hat and an elegant overcoat, a malacca cane with a curved handle hung on his forearm, and when I was introduced, the enthusiasm of my handshake sent his cane flying through the air. When we rushed to pick it up, we all bumped into one another and burst out laughing. He shared the apartment with his mother and his brother, Edward, whom he complained he never saw. The brother complained that he never saw Ravel either, Ravel being uh, Maurice being a, a night bird. There was nothing to indicate that a composer lived in the apartment. He liked to keep the apparatus of his tricks hidden so that there was rarely even a pencil or a piece of manuscript paper lying on the desk or the piano. The only score I saw was 60 sonatas by Scarlatti. Ravel practiced the Scarlatti sonatas. Mother Goose began as a suite of piano pieces for the children of some friends to play as a piano duet. And in 1912, uh, Ravel adapted the work for orchestra and later expanded it to a more complete uh, ballet. It's a collection of pieces from, uh, from fairy tales. And the, the opening piece, the pavan, 
um, takes the picture of the, a princess who was compelled to sleep by the wicked fairy uh, disguised as an old woman. The princess must remain asleep until awoken by a handsome prince. We all know the story. The music suggests the sleeping princess, and later along, the footsteps of the prince who is navigating his way through the tangled undergrowth of the forest to reach her. This is how it sounds in the orchestral version. These are soft, uh, Randy. In the conversations between Beauty and the Beast, Beauty, who is the youngest daughter of, uh, youngest of her father's children, offer to, offers to give her life uh, for her father by fulfilling his pledge and going to live in the, in the palace with the Beast, who is an ugly monster. At the beginning, she sits at the mirror powdering her face. And the beast comes along, and they, they engage in a dialogue. They have a conversation, and the beast implore, implores her to marry him. And she demurs, but eventually they continue to, con to converse, and, and she, in fact, talks him into it. The, in the orchestral version, the beast is portrayed by the contrabassoon. And I can imagine one of the low reed stops being used tonight to portray the beast. And they, conf they converse, and she agrees to marry him, at which point he is restored to his former self, which, of course, is a handsome prince. The last piece uh, is the fairy garden, and the Prince Charming enters the garden where the prince, uh, Princess Florine lies asleep. He eventually awake, she eventually awakes, and as the two of them lock eyes, the place becomes a magic garden. And this piece reminds me always of the Great Gate of Kiev, which was Ravel's orchestration of the piece by Modest Mazorsky from Pictures at an Exhibition. It's a big, beautiful, chordal um, work, and it'll sound great on this instrument. So it's going to be a wonderful program. Uh, I know that you're going to enjoy it. Uh, thank you for your attention, and have a wonderful evening. Thank you. Thank you.